0: Hi, I'm Steve Goldrich from Gun Hill Road, and I'm the next guest on On Screen and
1: Beyond.
2: On Screen and Beyond: An Inside Look into the Entertainment World, featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond.
1: Brian Zimran.
2: well here we go it's time for another episode of on screen and beyond let's get things rolling this is episode 475 of the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies remakes sequels and tv and movie dvd releases as well as our interview segment with the guests from the movie tv or music industry This week on On Screen and Beyond, we have Steve Goldrich from Gun Hill Road. He's going to be joining us. That song came out back in 1973. It was called Back When My Hair Was Short by Gun Hill Road. Steve's going to be joining us and talking all about that experience and what he's been doing and all the things that they went through. And I hope you can enjoy that. That's coming up in a few minutes right here on On Screen and Beyond. And, of course, we're back into our remakes and our upcoming movies and sequels and TV and movie DVD releases and everything. Get ready. It's time for another episode of On Screen and Beyond.
1: Please hang up and try again.
2: Remake Madness, an animated remake of The Addams Family, is in the works over at MGM. And Stephen King's The Talisman will be jumping to the big screen. Producer Frank Marshall has hired a writer to move it along. And the short film Pigeon Impossible is going to be remade into a full-length animated movie starring the voices of Will Smith and Tom Holland. And it will be called Spies in Disguise. That's it for Remake Madness. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, upcoming new movies. Upcoming new movies, it looks like CBS Films now has a release date for Winchester with Helen Maron. And you can look for that on February 2nd, 2018. And a new name, Winchester, The House That Ghost Built. Lionel Richie is getting into the producing film business. He has acquired the rights to produce a biopic on the life of Curtis Mayfield. And Tyler Perry will play Colin Powell in an untitled biopic on Dick Cheney. That's it for upcoming new movies next on On Screen and Beyond. What's coming your way as far as sequels down at Sequel City? Sequel City, well, 1988's Beetlejuice is still possibly getting a sequel. A writer has been hired by Warner Brothers to pen Beetlejuice 2. And Men in Black is getting a spin-off film. Neither Will Smith or Tommy Lee Jones will be in the film. And the new Halloween movie with Jamie Lee Curtis, it's going to be slashing its way into theaters on October 19th, 2018. That's it for Sequel City. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as TV on DVD? TV on DVD. Well, we've got a couple of things coming your way. November 10th, Gallivant, The Complete Collection, will make its way onto the DVD scene. And on November 9th, The Immortal, The Complete Collection, with Christopher George from... 1970 will be coming our way and game of thrones complete seventh season will be hitting stores on december 12th that's it for tv on dvd next on on screen and beyond let's take a look at what's coming your way as far as movies on dvd (laughs) movies on dvd it looks like home again with reese witherspoon arrives on december 12th december 19th dunkirk will be hitting blu-ray and dvd and 4k And Tom Cruise in American Made flies into stores on January 2nd. That's it for Movies on DVD. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's TV and Entertainment Time. (laughs) TV and Entertainment Time, well, actor James Woods has announced that he's retiring from acting. And NBC will be having a Bad Boys spin-off series, and it's going to be starring Gabrielle Union. And CBS has yanked Bobby Moynihan's me, myself, and I from its schedule. No announcement of cancellation yet. And that's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's celebrity birthdays.
1: <laughs> we make you a birthday. If you get it to me, ache and you moan and groan and woe, don't forget we told you so. Happy birthday! Happy
2: birthday! Happy birthday! <laughs> Celebrity birthdays, it looks like November 6th, Sally Fields turns 71. November 7th, Joni Mitchell turns 74. November 8th, Parker Posey turns 49. And on November 9th, Lou Ferrigno turns 66, the Incredible Hulk. And on November 10th, Tracy Morgan turns 49. And on November 11th, it looks like Callista Flockhart turns 53, and Leonardo DiCaprio turns 43. And on November 12th, Neil Young turns 72. That's it for Celebrity Birthdays. As far as listener birthdays, well, it is Jessica T. of Anchorage, Alaska, turning 43 on November 10th and that's it for listener birthdays so if you a friend or a relative are going to be having a birthday send the information to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com and we will all be celebrating and wishing you a very happy birthday along with our celebrity birthdays right here on on screen and beyond and that's it for listener and celebrity birthdays next on on screen and beyond steve goldrich of gun hill road is going to be joining us back in 1973 they had a hit That was uh, called Back When My Hair Was Short. Great song. Loved it. And uh, he's going to be talking about that and so much more. Steve Goldrich is next right here on On Screen and Beyond. Joining us today on On Screen and Beyond is one of the founders of the group Gun Hill Road, who back in 1973 broke into the top 40 nationally and top 10 in many local markets with the song Back When My Hair Was Short. They opened for Harry Chapin, Gordon Lightfoot, and Bette Middle, just to name a few. All these years later, they are back with a new album and a documentary made about them called Every 40 Years. It's Steve Goldrich. Steve, welcome to On Screen and Beyond.
0: Well, thank you so much, Brian. It's really terrific uh, that you invited us on, uh, me in particular, and uh, it's wonderful. This is the kind of experience
2: that over the course of years, I forgot how much fun this was. Well, Steve, it, it's such a pleasure to have you on because back when my hair was short, and it wasn't short back then, but, <laughs> but uh, that song was one of my favorite songs, and it just seemed back in the 70s. There were so many good songs, and you guys came out with a great one, and uh, it, it's good to hear you guys back again. And uh, Let's give some of our listeners who may not know uh, about you uh, what, what Gun Hill Road was. How did you guys start getting into the business? Okay, that's uh, I think it's a fair question. Uh, the
0: three of us were friends when we were in high school. Uh, the bass player, Gil, at the time was in the same school as I in Mount Vernon, New York, and Glenn was a student at uh, Pleasantville High School, a few miles away. Uh, I got to know Glenn through his stepbrother, and then we'll speed up a bit. And Glenn and I played um, in a couple of high school groups together before Gil got involved, and Gil and I played in some groups together. Uh, ultimately, Glenn went away, and he had always been writing songs, came back to finish, I think, his last year and a half at NYU, and at that, point, at that time, rather, I was playing uh, piano. Glenn and I were playing, originally I was playing drums, and we had always remained friends, came back, he was still writing some songs. I uh, now was a different type of musician, obviously, and uh, we started playing his stuff. Uh, He had gone to the bitter end, I'm going to make a very long story, a short one. In 1969, and then we started doing these hoots together, which were on Tuesday evening. The End was open seven nights a week, and in those days, the uh, club was considered one of the premier places to play anywhere. Although it only had 200-and-something seats, it was an important place because the record companies needed showcase areas to put big performers in. And that's ultimately where we ended up meeting and playing with people like George Carlin and Robert Klein and Lily Tomlin and, you know, whatever. So we're playing and then uh, it seemed like we should get a bass player. We got a bass player. He didn't last very long. And then Gil came in and then we started making the rounds of uh, different record labels. And in those days when you did a demo, uh, very different than it ultimately became, we would go into a studio with well known people, by the way, as producers. Uh, at Decca Records, it was Eddie Simon, Paul Simon's brother. At Atlantic Records, it was Gene Cornish from The Rascals. Wow. Um, Lee DeCarlo, who I think produced or was the chief engineer on John Lennon's Double Fantasy. And people like that. And we would do live demos, live demos, live demos. No overdubbing. It was just live. And um, we ultimately did one at Mercury Records in 1970. 70. Then we. Got signed and recorded our album in about a six-month period. The studio was on West 57th Street, uh, and it was interesting at that time because I was see, 1970. I wasn't even 20 yet. My birthday's at the end of the year, and when we were going to the studio, which was maybe a hundred feet from Carnegie Hall, the hookers were always outside at night. In our minds we look like older guys but I guess we look like they're kids. So nobody ever said, Hey, you wanna have some fun? <laughs> sad. It was very sad. And that's when we started doing that and then from that point we started we got an agent and Paul Colby, who was the owner of the Bitter End, was our manager. That's how it started off. Paul put us into the Bitter End Works where we played a lot and then with the record deal and whatever we were uh we got an agency. In those days, it was a big agency. It became even bigger. It was called CMA, which became ICM, which became who knows what. Mm-hmm. And we were a, a, a good act to open uh, for other people because, number one, <laughs> as you make you laugh. Maybe it won't make you laugh. We didn't have any equipment. We had a couple of acoustic guitars and the bass and a small amp. I played acoustic piano, which was supplied by, you know, wherever we were. Mm-hmm. We weren't loud. We didn't have drums when we played live. And there was, again, a big setup. So when we opened for Poco, we toured with them a lot. Wow! Poco loved us. I mean, I think they liked us anyway, but they really loved us because they could set us up and take us off in the time it took Rusty Young to uh, tune one string on <laughs> a field. I mean, literally. I, you know, that's how. So that was one of the nice things about being able to play in many places. And also, you know, 1969, 70, 71, and whatever, the industry and the world was frankly very different. Obviously no internet, no whatever. Um, but there were so many places to perform, uh, be it the Bitter End in New York, and there were many other places as well, but the Bitter End was the best place because it was the biggest in terms of the notoriety, the main point, Philadelphia, cellar door in Washington that goes on and on and on. And then you had concerts, and the concerts in large part took place. I'm not saying there weren't concerts in real concert halls, but most colleges in those days – had substantial budgets to bring in whomever, mm-hmm. and because of that, there were always a bit, there was always something out there in, at any one time on a weekend that was typically a pretty you know big event, and they took place often in in you know the gymnasium of a particular school, whatever the school might have been in Dartmouth or wherever it was. So for us, it was. It was almost otherworldly to, to be in a situation like that because we just loved doing this so much. We really did. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's how we continued to continue. And you know, uh, it was there was really nothing about it that I can not say in retrospect we really didn't love. Not that every moment was wonderful, but as mm-hmm. a rule, it was great.
2: Why did you guys not have a drummer? I mean, at that time, of course, most bands had drummers too.
0: Um. You know, I don't know if we ever really thought this through that way. You know, the 70s were still uh, a folk period. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it wasn't It wasn't early 60s with Peter, Paul and Mary, but we played with a lot of folk people. We played with Tom Paxton. We played with, um, God, I can't think of other people's things. We played with people who were real folk artists, Odetta and other people, but... For whatever reason, it just seemed that we never thought it through. And Glenn and I played with drummers all the time. So when we did our first album, the producer, Jay Lear, had the idea that he wanted to bring a drummer in. And we said, okay, bring a drummer in. We didn't care. Uh, that's why the first album is drums, the second album is drums, and the third album is drums. Yeah. Uh, and we did have a drummer for a short period of time in 1975, for a handful of months, when we played live. Um, I don't know exactly why we never chose to have one, but I think in retrospect it was probably... We were better served not having a drummer in large part because we, when you play with a drummer, you have to follow. The drummer is the one who keeps everything moving, and it also creates a lot louder sound. It's just louder. It uh, is what it is. Yeah. And we weren't a loud group. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, back when my hair was short, you know, our hit record, not that it was loud, but it was, well, the reality is it had piano, it had drums, it had bass, and it had strings. That's it. It's a very sparsely played record, but, you know, and to be fair, I'm not really an honest broker on this, it had a bigger sound in large part because of the kind of song it was. When Mm -hmm. we played during the time it was a hit, people who didn't know us were very surprised, (laughs) often for the better, but sometimes they said, hey, where's the group that was on the record? Because Back When My Hair Was Short, at least the version on the radio, was not the same as what we did, which was another Back When My Hair Was Short we had recorded. Uh, two years earlier, a year earlier,
2: right, it and it a was a lot different. I, I I've been listening to that, and uh, it, it was you know the, a lot of the words were different in it.
0: There were yeah, there were some drug references. It, it was it was the the lyric was very much a part of its time. Uh, it because back on my hair was short was a lament about years earlier when whomever the person was, the hair was short and they had a a, a DA and they. Smoked and blah 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 blah, and then as the song progresses, the the person is all of a sudden now his hair is longer. Uh, he mentions, I think, in the beginning, we say, "Feeding uh, my mind, LSD, THC, STP." I think I was STP. I'm not sure now. It's like it's like snap crackle and pop. I'm not sure which one I. If I think it through, I'll remember my part. But anyway, it it wasn't. It was, um, uh, in large part telling a story about that period. It wasn't uh, maybe The the Grateful Dead's cocaine, which I think talks about how they sort of like cocaine. Mm -hmm. This was just a a commentary. Neil Bogart, who was the president of Buddha Records, that was our second label, when he heard it, he said, I believe that this can be a hit if it's sped up and a few of these drug lyrics are pushed aside, which is why the AM version said it's slick... um, Feet of My Mind LSD, it said, learning to set my mind free or something. But being such, uh, you know, we were, we were such artists when he suggested that the lyric be changed nominally uh, instead of biting him. We said, absolutely, of course we should change it. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> but the point being, yeah, if this is going to be something that has the potential to be a hit record, let's go for it. Right. Yeah. And, it, and it was, it also had the distinction, and most people don't know this because why would they? In 1973, Back When My Hair Was Short, was top ten in more different cities at more different times than any record of the year. And that is the reason why it never got higher than it did.
1: Hmm. (laughs) Because in those
0: days, yeah, there were three charts. You had Record World, Cashbox, and Billboard. Right. Today, Billboard exists, and the other two are gone. Um, We got to 20, I have to remember, 24, I think, in Record World, 25 or maybe lower in cash box and billboard we got to 40 and the, the, the short version of a long story is the week we were at 40 and it mentions it actually in the um i think it mentions it on billboard that week they changed the matrix for deciding where a record was mm-hmm. in terms of the charts i don't know how they really changed it and it was it was unfortunate but that's what it was um and you know then of course at
2: that point we followed up with a couple of records but that's yeah that's the other part of the story now you mentioned that you know you in Poco you were with Poco and, and and different different groups uh now of course you guys are starting out and everything is there any certain group that you were just blown away that you were going to be playing for and so excited to get out there and, and open for them it would be a question of which group we were
0: and feeling okay. <laughs> And that really is sort of what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can recount some just some stories that I still talk about. It's almost as though I'm talking about somebody else. Uh, we did a telethon with Sammy Davis Jr. for the National Highway Safety Association, or whatever it's called,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which was at the Ed Sullivan Theater, which became a David – well, it's still the Ed Sullivan Theater, but that's where Late Night was filmed. And I think mm-hmm. Late Night is still filmed or taped there, rather, or shot or whatever they call it. Yeah. And when we got to the studio, which, of course, was a mess of people, um, I had never been inside of the theater, let alone I had never been backstage. And I remember getting there, and it was reasonably late. Well, I mean, in those days it wasn't late for me, but now at 9.30 it's late. And we got there, and there were celebrities all over the place. And I remember and I walked toward the um, stage door entrance, I believe it was in the back, and a limo pulled up. And a limo stops, and out comes Pearl Bailey and and um, Louis Belson, her husband, a mm-hmm. very famous jazz drummer. And it was those types of um, experiences that made us all think, this is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. This is absolutely unbelievable. Because these occurred on a regular basis, either because we were playing with fel- famous people. When we worked with um, Lily at The Bitter End, there was no week we played in the entire seven years we were together in those days where we saw more celebrities, uh, the Bitter End again with 200 plus people. She was just breaking. She was on laughing, but she was breaking big. Mm-hmm. And of course, the people who came to see her were commensurate with her with her um, uh, fame. So we're there one night, and we we see Ed Sullivan was there with his wife. Wow! So you know, again, this is for her, not for us. But they had to all see us play. They had no choice. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so in between, when we got done with our set. We intentionally walked over and he was in with his wife what were the best seats in the house. And the Bitter End was essentially benches. And then the best benches were directly opposite the stage. That's funny. The best benches versus not so good benches. <laughs> yeah. And the bitter end also did not serve alcohol. Uh, in those days, clubs like the Bitter End, the Main Point, Cellador, etc. Even I think the true the Troubadour may have served ice cream, sodas and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now the other side of the coin was people didn't typically need alcohol because they were way beyond the point of knowing where they were often when they walked in. <laughs> so, no, you know, that was sort of part and parcel of it. That was fine. So we see Sullivan is sitting there. Glenn, myself, and Gil sit down at the booth next to him. When I say booth, there was nothing separating us, and we're sitting there. And that afternoon, um, Billy Joe Royal, had his press party there. And the only reason I remember this is we're sitting at a table and they still had the tent cards on the table. We hear Ed Sullivan's wife, whose name was Sylvia, say to Sullivan, those are the boys, those are the boys. Hmm. So he proceeds to stand up. Now we knew Ed Sullivan grew up in Westchester County where we live. But at the same time, just seeing him was enough. He gets up, he moves the three feet to where we are. And it really was in every aspect hard to fathom that here we are talking to a guy his show been off the air for about a year but just that we were talking to him mm-hmm. and we spent a few minutes talking to him he we mentioned to him we know you're from portchester he said i am i won't do my bad impression of him and then he said what's your what is your name again my name What's? and then he looks at the placard on the table he says you're the billy joe royal said, no, no 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 that was today he uh, you know and then we spoke a bit longer and while we're talking to him, Rod Serling walked by, and this person walks by, and it it, it it wasn't a question of us wanting to pinch ourselves, because we would have been pinching ourselves all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: was rather being in this rarefied world. We're sitting, the same night we're sitting there, and Woody Guthrie's widow was there. And you couldn't help but talk to these people. Mm-hmm. You just couldn't help talk to them, but talk to them. And the, So getting back to the original question of anybody that we worked with that we couldn't believe we were working with... um. There were just so many people we worked with that we felt that way about. Uh, When we worked with George Carlin, that's when he was just changing his act. Not literally that day, but Mm -hmm, his hair was long. Uh, And and Paul Colby said to us, what do you think about me bringing Carlin in? And Glenn and I said, oh, he's really, really funny. But Paul wasn't convinced he was going to be able to draw anybody. And that was not the beginning, but close to the beginning of when he really, really, really took off. Same with Robert Klein and all these people. Uh, but we were we were the best audiences. We loved these people. I'll tell you a little story that I find funny in retrospect. We used to go to the and I, all the time when we weren't playing. And obviously we got in for free. Jerry Jeff Walker, who wrote Mr. Bojangles, and had an FM hit with it. It wasn't a hit for him like it was with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Right. Performed every night. And David Bromberg, for anybody who knows David Bromberg, just a fabulous guitar player, was his backup guitar player. And there would typically be in the Bitter end maybe 40, 50 people. Not much more than that. And every night with Jerry Jeff Walker, because he did two shows every night, and, except for Friday and Saturday, there were three shows per night. And every night when he played Mr. Bojangles and he started, you know, dong, dong, and as soon as he hit the second note, Quinn and I would go, we'd clap. And as we clapped, Jerry Jeff Walker would nod and smile every night. So one night we're talking to him and he said, you know, it's really nice to you guys, you to do this every night, it's become part of the act. And we said, well, it's you know such a wonderful song, but, you know, meeting all these different people and seeing them and having all these amazing opportunities was a dream.
1: Oh, yeah. And, sure. and,
0: and it was never really for us, not that we didn't want to make money and not that we didn't want to sell records, but we couldn't believe we were doing it. Yeah. And in many respects, you still can't believe you're doing it when you play. Right. Maybe that's what makes us different than other people because we we, we take – this whole experience is is being something that's so rarefied, and and that you know it's continued through
2: this through this day. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, who are your inspirations? You, you, you know, all of you, as far as the Gun Hill Road group, uh, who? who, well, who we, all, we you? all
0: love vocal. We all love vocal groups. Vocal groups being the Hollies, being the Beatles, being the Beach Boys. That that kind of vocal mm-hmm. combination. But we were all from a generation where we all knew and listened to. Um, big band people, and we knew Sinatra, and we knew Mel Torme, and we knew Buddy Greco. Now, when I say we knew them, I mean we knew their music. We didn't know these right. people. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think, one of the big differences, also. And I, and I'm, I feel certain you'll agree with me. One of the nice things existing before all of the internet stuff and, and all these things is there were only so many radio stations. So when you listen to, let's say, a top forty station. Everybody had that shared experience. It's the same with TV, all those things. If you watched Johnny Carson on a Monday night and he had, let's say, Tiny Tim, that was a big show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seemed probable that most people you knew probably saw it, and and that was there was a common bond to all this. And I know you, you know you mentioned you've been on radio for years. Um, when you played a new record, I guarantee years back. Because I remember hearing new records singing, that's the most unbelievable song. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. would try to figure out, what is that song? Where can you find it? Keeping in mind, the only way you can find it is call the station up or wait to hear it again and hopefully the DJ would say something. Mm-hmm. And then you ran to a record store. And In my case, where we lived, it was Sam Goody. But there were stores all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a lot of vocal stuff. Um, harmonies were a big thing. Melodies were a big thing. And I think we were all attracted to songs that had hooks. And for those who don't know what a hook is, the hook would be, uh, let's see, uh, uh, help for the Beatles. When they say, help, I need somebody, that's a hook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing that's memorable, the thing that makes a song typically, uh, assuming it's a hit, of course, become a hit. It's it's the kind of thing when you hear it, you think to yourself, that's unbelievable. It yeah. sounds familiar, but I never heard that before. Yeah. And that was the best thing, I think, about our group, Uh, In terms of our camaraderie, we all truly appreciated and liked a lot of the same stuff. Now, some you know, Glenn might have liked this; I didn't care for it, or vice versa. But as a rule, we pretty much liked a lot of the same things. And when we would drive, if we were going someplace where we could drive to a place rather than fly, what did we have? There was no, there were no eight tracks, there were no cassettes. Well, there might have been eight tracks in those days, but the car we had barely had an engine, (laughs) and we would sing. We would, You know, we'd be driving a few hours, and all of a sudden we would just start singing, and we, we knew lots of songs. We didn't sing our stuff. We would just sing oldies, meaning it could be – well, I say oldies. It could be stuff from the 50s or the 60s.
1: Yeah.
0: But they were songs that we knew, and they typically had harmonies in them. Mm-hmm. And we did that for hours on end. Um, so, you know, we had that shared experience as well. Uh, that was one of the fun parts of of of, of doing this because – You know, when you think about it, how long were we on stage for? Even when we headlined, an hour, Mm an hour and a half, maybe?
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: So the larger part of our day was spent getting someplace, checking into a hotel or staying on a campus, whatever we did, hopefully meeting girls. That was very important. (laughs) And uh, doing radio if we went somewhere or doing some TV, whatever. But we would, it was the entire experience. And uh, keeping in mind, we were often much younger than the people we were playing for. Yeah. Not much, we were younger right yeah uh, you know when we first started touring I was I was 18 jeez yeah.
2: and uh, Gil was 18 and Clem was a year and a half older than us now you and mentioned so, hooks uh, it, of course m- most of the time you mentioned it's it's singing but when you play your piano open for opening for back when my hair was short yeah it, I mean that's a hook itself. I mean, it, it's that is a hook. yeah. The yeah, second you hear it, it's like, wow, <laughs> this is good. It's now, first of all. I have to give credit to Gil, who actually
0: uh, we were rehearsing one day, and the, the song didn't have a beginning. It was you know back on my head. We just started off, and Gil uh, played a little something on the piano. I think it was a little different than this. And I said, oh, that's sort of interesting. And that's what it became. Now, obviously, the if you hear the recording of the first version, which was recorded, Kenny Rogers produced that. That was done in California, and the. Second one, or the one that became a hit record, two different producers. That was Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise, who did "Stories," "Brother Louie. They did yes. uh, "Imagination" from Gladys Knight and the Pips. "Got to Lose Your Imagination." Um, it was also partially the way it was recorded. And I remember when "Back of My Hair" was short was released. They told us that it was the hottest. Now, hottest not meaning the best. Hottest in terms of the the, the compression on it and If you listen, next time you hear it, if you happen to hear it, you can hear the the cymbal, rather the hi-hat. Even Gil, when he sings, it's like, (laughs) there's no auto-tuning. It's just the way it was was recorded very hot. Yeah. Yeah. Almost as though, and again, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but if you look at the meter, if the meter, let's say, goes into red at, I'm going to make up a number, 10.
2: We were at 9. Hmm. Like maybe
0: that does that explain it? Yeah. That no, it? I
2: understand what you're talking. No, about. I know you do. I'm trying yeah. to anybody else. Right. Get this.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: and, th- and that's what it was. So that's where the record came from. And it's interesting because the beginning of it, um which obviously you know is not a long, long piece, in my mind is in a similar world to, let's say, the beginning of Ticket to Ride. And- I'm putting myself at the Beatles, but you know what I'm saying. No, are, I, I,
2: I was thinking the same thing when you said that, you know. The, the, or the in the Years, or we mm-hmm. can think of so many songs with with
0: wonderful intros.
2: Right, they just draw you in the second you hear it.
0: Yeah, that's it. And of course, as a DJ, you know this better than anybody. If you have a song that starts off with an instrument, that's that's talking time,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the skill was to talk until the moment the voice came on, right? <laughs> and I used to watch the and I loved watching this. I really did. And nobody loved radio more than we did. Nobody loved radio more than us. That made it even more fun. We were in the studio. It, it was again. It was hard to understand how we could be sitting there. How could we be sitting there? We're just you know, three guys from from Malvern, New York. We shouldn't be in the studio. We should be cleaning the studio. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's what So, so it, it really is in many respects uh, uh, one of the keys. If you don't catch people in the first, I, I don't want to say seconds, but probably seconds of a, of a song. Oh yeah, that's it. You're done.
2: Definitely,
1: definitely. You
0: know, and 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 uh, I would imagine. There are many, many songs that you heard over the course of your career that you loved. But if you listen to them objectively, you said, "Yeah, I can see why this wasn't really a hit for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. yeah but then again, who really knows what's a hit? If people knew what was going to be successful, every successful producer and recording artist would always be successful, and we know they're not right.
1: yeah, yeah,
0: and that's true of everybody. It's true of yeah. actors and actresses and 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 whatever. So yeah, that's that's the key, and then of course when you have a big hit—I don't mean us, but when you have a big hit record or something sounds a little different—forty-five people come out the next day with something exactly like it, or they used to. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Which 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 you know, it, but those days are sort of gone. Although when you listen to um, very successful pop artists, I don't mean today, but you know over the course of the last 10, 15 years, and you hear Britney Spears, whatever—and not taking anything away from these people, but it is different in large part because. They're not really reproducing what these people do. They're making a record, which to some degree is like the Beatles when they stopped touring.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. The big difference, however, is the Beatles still were a great live act. Right. Oh, yeah. And that's probably the big difference. And and without saying this person is, this person isn't, Mm -hmm. we had no option. We couldn't hide behind anything. I mean, literally couldn't. Yeah. Because, you know, three guys, three microphones, a few guitars, a bass, and a piano.
1: And you guys
2: harmonize so
0: good. Well, that's very sweet of you. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. We, we, we I think uh, what explained our harmonies the best was uh, Jay Lear, the producer of our first album, he said when he met us and that was doing the, the demo, he said we had what he called brother harmonies, which, not to confuse anybody, brother meaning brothers, like we're all brothers from the mm-hmm. same family. Um, that was just the way it was. It wasn't that we worked on it. I had a sort of nondescript voice, so my voice blended with everybody. Uh, and then Glenn and Gill, although the voices are very different, when we sang together, it did sound sort of like one sweet, nice voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which, which, of course, again is it, everything is relative because harmonies, I think, are always in fashion. But then the other side of it is sometimes you'd never know people are even singing harmonies anymore. Yeah. Uh, when I say that, I don't mean that literally. I'm saying in terms of the pop music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But there's always some stuff that tends to come out. There's always some stuff that could be played any time in any generation, and it still sounds good. And I think that's ultimately what it is. You yeah, have right. pop songs that sell lots of, well, I guess they still sell records per se. And then you have pop songs that are just really good songs that can be covered by other people, and they're just are the kinds of songs that you start humming to yourself, sometimes humming to the point where you're ready to, you know, walk into a doctor's office and i them sedate you, but you keep humming them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that, that really is the key. Everybody, everybody, unless they don't care about music, has songs like that, that, that you know, they that they keep playing in their heads. Um, that's, that's one of the things that I think is, you know, for many people, including us, so important in terms of music. It's just a seminal part of most people's lives. And to be, part and parcel of a world where you can actually have people saying, oh, I love that song. Like, oh. yeah.
2: Well, I, I wanted to mention that uh, the documentary about you guys uh, every 40 years, now this is your son that was producing this, right? Or making yeah, it, Eric, yeah, my
0: son, Eric Goldrich,
2: and he has a few partners. Uh, the I'll give you, again, a little short
0: version of how this started. When we did, we got back together uh, a few years back. It was really out of nowhere. When I say out of nowhere, I mean out of nowhere. Um, I was still talking to Glenn. I hadn't spoken to Paul. Paul replaced Gil in 1973. Just, you know, things happen. Mm-hmm. And I got a call one day from Glenn. We were in touch. I no, would speak here and there. A friend of his had seen an announcement for a benefit concert in, in um, I think, Cranberry, New Jersey, where they were honoring our ex-manager, Paul Colby. Peter and Paul from Peter, Paul and Mary were going to be there, uh, James Maddock, uh, a bunch of other people. So Glenn found the name of the person who was producing it. It was all a benefit, again, for Coalition for the Homeless. Touched base with them, and we said, no. would you, you know, would, would we be able to do this? And the people said, we'd love you to do it. Now it just turned out the producer... Of this, his name is Al Macuro. Al had—we didn't know this till the night we did this. Actually, Al produced a concert with us in Poco at Montclair, New Jersey, and he was a student. Wow! And the night we were there, he brought the—he brought the yearbook with the photos. It was, <laughs> it was another world. So we got back. Paul and I—I I hadn't seen Paul in thirty-six years. Uh, found Paul on Facebook, and the first thing I thought when I saw his face, I said, "Jesus, this guy hasn't aged at all." Look at him. He looks great. I didn't realize the picture he had on Facebook was from the time I last saw him. (laughs) So that immediately made me, okay, I feel a lot better. (laughs) Nothing worse than me. So he came over. This is about 40 minutes from here. And it really was like I had seen him an hour earlier. Mm. Uh, We start rehearsing a bit. Glenn comes east. We start rehearsing. Um, And actually, there's, my son said, I'm going to tape this. I think it'll be fun. Which I was watching the other night because I had these two big tetrabyte drives with all the footage from that rehearsal from The Bitter End, Uh, two weeks of studio recording, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And on this is the rehearsal. And I watched it the other night, and of course, I haven't seen this because why would I? And I'm listening with good headphones on and I thought to myself, we really sounded good. We hadn't played in 36 years and here we were. Um, That, uh, so Eric, we're done with that. He, films the outpost at the Burbs, which was – and we were the second act to go on, which was good and bad. It was bad because it meant we would have to play faster earlier, which scared all of us. (laughs) But it was good because it meant we'd be done earlier. I realize this sounds odd. We didn't want to be done, but rather we were all very nervous. Right. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So he films the whole thing. And the week before we do this, I – Online, I see that they're re-releasing through a company called Wounded Bird Records our second album on Buddha. Talk about yes, yeah. Who would think, yeah, what a weird thing. So now we have one of our albums that's out, which we thought was so interesting. You know, all the stars were aligning. We get done, and we had a wonderful time, and now we're friends again. Mm-hmm. We don't think about ever doing anything again, but the fact that we did this was beyond belief. A couple of months down the road... Glenn calls me. He said, you know, what do you think if we got back together again and, and recorded? I said, that would be fine. We have to do it in New York. I have a company. I just can't leave for an, you a know, definite period of time. Mm-hmm. And we found a studio, and then we spent the next six months recording. Glenn was here for a few weeks, went back to L.A., and that's when Eric said to me before we started, he said, I think I want to do a documentary. Now, his perspective on the documentary with his partners was this is really important. Not important because we're big. Important story because you have guys who haven't. So recorded in 40 years together. eight yeah. And they have a big film crew. Um, and we start to record and whatever. And uh, from that point, you know, we're spending about six months, Paul and I, back and forth. Paul Schaefer played on one track. Yeah, know, how'd was,
2: you get Paul Schaefer
0: track. on there? <laughs> that was the uh, studio owner. He, he knew Paul a bit and he came in. And um, we brought a few other people in as well. And Glenn had some people play in California. But the idea was that we would play. The stuff we play, you know, which is I would play piano and whatever keyboards. Paul would play bass and then guitar, lead guitar and stuff, and Glenn would play rhythm. But we didn't obviously play violins, whatever. Um, so we hired an arranger, a wonderful arranger out of Chicago, uh, who who did the um, arrangements for the strings. I think I think there were six or seven songs with you know violins and cellos and such, and um, had a real live string section do this. It wasn't just you know. Oh using synthesizers um, had a guy come in who did banjo we had somebody on the west coast who did uh, sort of a Stefan Grappelli kind of violin thing and on and on and on and um, it, it, Eric continued to be you know going after interviews with people one of the hard parts he told me and, and by the way just you know, so everybody understands I stayed as far away from involvement as possible with Eric I said all I want to be his one name at the end of the movie as one of the members, that's it. Mm-hmm. I don't want any other part of this because then I'm getting involved with what he does for a living. I don't want to do it. Well, we're, the album's now done. They're going to record us at the bitter end where we hadn't played literally in almost 40 years. Jeez. At that point, Paul Colby had passed away. The bitter end was a different place, but it was was the bitter end. It was alcohol, not that it's bad. I'm saying it was just a different place, right. yeah, and yeah. Uh, it was an invited audience. We had a, a special. It was the CD, but we had a different cover made up for it. Everybody got one, who was you know came to the show, and it was obviously packed, and it was filmed. Well, down the road, a piece, Eric found that in talking to people and and, and doing some original test screenings and such, he said, you know, this story is not. The story we thought it was anymore because at that time groups started getting back together again sticks did a reunion thing and did a box mm. documentary someone else did it little by little it seemed that there were other people doing this some people were recording and nobody cared which was whatever so he and his partners did a 180 cut the film uh, a lot and changed the direction from a isn't this interesting these guys are back together 40 years later to Essentially, people getting a chance to do something again, which is universal—to have an opportunity, which most people don't get. But if they, you know, have an opportunity, and it's not music, anything, it's anything—it's somebody who maybe was—I'm trying to think of an example here. They were a terrific skier, and they hadn't skied in thirty years. And he said, "You know, I'm going to try this again." That kind of thing. yeah. yeah. And then um, when they were done, he started approaching um, other film festivals. Which they're still, you know, trying to do. And we got into the Santa Barbara Film Festival, where Glenn lives. And uh, we said, "Okay, why don't we play again?" So we found a place. Glenn found a place, and we uh, spoke to the people. I, Glenn spoke to them, whatever. And then we decided after the first screening of the film on a it was a night, we would go down the street, and again everybody who came to the movie it was it was advertised a bit, and there was no charge. We played for a good hour and a half. Um, you know, really to sort of support what we had just done. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, we, you know, got some feedback from people about the uh, documentary as well because here we are seeing people for the first time viewing it as Eric and his partners did. And people seem to really, really like it. I think in large part because there was nothing in the film, even when it was longer, that, you know, there was no, where's the conflict which Ben Friedberg, one of our partners said. Uh he said, Where's the conflict in this? I'm missing something. Where is the angst? Where is the where are the issues with these guys? And somebody said to him, said, You know what, Ben? This is just three guys having a good time. That's what this is. Mm-hmm. There's there's no dark secret. Yeah, I mean we've all had stuff we could talk about, but that's not what this was.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so now they got a distributor who and we're getting closer and closer. They're going to be releasing the DVD, I believe, in February. Uh, that's the hard DVD, the one I sort of still care about. But the big push is on the, le- is on the streaming side, mm-hmm, which, yeah. you know, for me, I understand what streaming is, but I still like the idea of holding something.
2: In yeah, the me account.
0: too. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we're from similar generations. Right. <laughs> it, it's somewhat anachronistic to think that the hard copies of things are important, but I don't issue the reality of the Internet. I love it. Mm-hmm. I like all these things, but I also like the fact that I can pick... It's like, you know, a book. I, I read things online all the time, but I like holding a book in my hand and turning the page. Mm-hmm. I do. Yep. I, maybe that will die with our generation, but yeah. I do I do enjoy that. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens come, uh, I guess, after New Year's, because the talk now is for us to play again, probably in the West Coast, four or five nights in different places, to, again, uh, showcase the film... Um, so there's talk of L.A. and uh, San Diego, Santa Barbara, maybe Portland, Oregon, a few other places, which will be fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this is, again, that, that gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. And, you know, for us, we're not looking and we're not, of course, so out of the loop as to think that people are going to see this and say, okay, now we're going to book them on a, you know, a 10-country tour. We <laughs> but at the same time, if we have opportunity to do things,
2: of course we're going to do them. Why wouldn't we do them? Yeah. Yeah. Hey. I mean, you know, if you're having fun, that's what counts. Yeah. It's be It's beyond fun, and the best part of this
0: is as follows: Glenn, myself, and Paul are really close friends, and that's the best part of all this. Mm-hmm. I mean, the album aside, the documentary aside, uh, it's really the most gratifying part that we all still get along as well as we do. We always did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, really when you think about it, what do we have other than relationships with people? I don't want to get too serious here, but that is what it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and to be able to be with people, and if you don't talk for, you know, we're not talking every minute, we're together. There are moments when I think to myself, there's something we share that nobody else, not that we don't want them to, but it's us. It's nobody else. Right. And it's almost like being with family. And they are family. You know, if you're with a Cousin, or an aunt, or maybe a bunch of people at a reunion. I would imagine most people think like this. It's it's unspoken. We have a connection without doing anything, mm-hmm. and that's a very comforting thing. Yeah, you know. Uh, it's funny. I want to just mention one thing real fast. That when we were, the documentary ends, and I'm going to tell you this because I think it's not because I said it, but I think it is what to me what this whole thing is. Um, I don't know what the question was, but I was. Sort of lamenting the fact that as we go through our lives, we go through so many relationships with so many people. And the vast majority, if not most of them, don't end because of a fight, a disagreement. They just sort of, you know, they peter away. Right. It's yeah. odd. I said, it's like being in a train and you have a friend and they're there for two stops. And then you have another friend there for three stops. I mean, you know, I'm not being literal. And then you turn around and say, where are these people? But what happened to all these people? Mm-hmm. It wasn't as though we said, well, I can't be friends with you anymore. That's over. And it doesn't work like that. And, you know, after lamenting this for for a minute or so on the screen, I, I'm i looking at the camera, and I just say, wow. But that's what it is to me, and then the film ends. Um, so that's, to me, the bigger picture here. It's mm-hmm. having these relationships at this point. I'll be 67 next month. Paul was just 69. Glenn is 69. You know, when I think back to a different time and place, 69, that was barely, barely people have, you know, barely lived that long. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Uh, I don't want to say 69 or 67 is the new 30, right? but it, it, there is a difference today, I believe. And,
1: oh, yeah.
0: You know, having all these opportunities and now having the continued opportunities to, to still be peripherally part of some of these things is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's the way I see it. I, I
2: know it's the way Paul sees it and yeah. the, way, the way Glenn sees it. And, and after all, how much more could you ask for? Yeah. Well, it was like you said. You, you hadn't seen him for 30-something years, and you got together, and it was like you had seen him an hour ago. Literally, yeah. It
0: was more Paul than Glenn, although Glenn and I didn't see each other that often. But we did here and there see each other when he came to New York. Yeah, but with Paul, it was... How could this be? Yeah. How could this be that I haven't seen you in decades, and here we are? And I speak all the time with Paul. I speak with Glenn. We email back and forth. Glenn, myself, his wife Allison, and my wife Leslie were in Santa Fe, New Mexico a couple of weeks ago. Paul was going to go with us, but his longtime girlfriend had an issue with her throat, so he couldn't make it. We're, but we're all going to be together this coming Thursday, a week from today, in uh, Florida. Mm-hmm. And, uh, are you playing? that again? Uh, no, no. We're no. Go, it, <laughs> uh, again, this is a long story, but every year I, I um, invite a bunch of people down to uh, a place called South Seas Resort in Captiva, Florida. Uh, and this year, Paul and Glenn are coming along with many other people I've invited. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, we take a bunch of people away. That's what we do.
1: That's great.
0: And it's fun. And then, uh, you know... If if this does work out, we play again. And I say play again, meaning play to support the film. Then we'll be reaching out uh, directly or indirectly to see if we can find places. Because we're not looking to make any money on it; we wouldn't presume to make money, nor would we probably make any. But more importantly, to find you know small clubs where we could show the film, yeah. get people to come in. The club owners, it's I mean, it's a win because they'll sell their drinks and their food. They don't have to give us anything. All they do is give us a sound system, a piano, and that's it, mm-hmm. and a screen for the movie. And then we're done uh so you know and then from that maybe something else happens uh, it's interesting the the synergy of of things particularly if your expectations are level you know it's not looking for home runs it's right. like exactly yeah you know it's it's that's you get a, you get a, you get on first base you walk you get a single and maybe the next guy up also walks or gets a single Now you're on second base but everybody wants to have a home run but i think pragmatically there's more pleasure in looking at it differently that, you know, instead of when you're young, you're going to beat the hell out of the world. It doesn't take long before you realize the world is not going to be beat up.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: You know, and and most people, you know, when you get to be our age, typically don't have, uh, let's say, a, uh, a renewal of an experience they had decades earlier. And that's, again, you know, one of the things about the film – I believe it does say to people, hey, you know what? If you did something a long time ago, not a what it is, this. Do it again. And after the film was uh, shown in Santa Barbara, the first screening, people came over to us and said, you know, after seeing this, I used to play trombone. Or somebody else said, I did X or Y, and this is – I'm going to do it again now.
2: Mm-hmm. Which I thought, wow,
0: isn't that amazing?
2: Yeah. Jeez. So, you know. Yeah. Well, Steve, I'd like to finish up with two final questions. Absolutely. Now, this takes us away from uh, the documentary Every 40 Years, takes us away from your new album, it takes us away from going back when my hair was short all those years ago and when you guys were a band and everything. Uh, But uh, when you sit back and relax now, what are your favorite TV shows that you like to watch now? What are you watching, and what's your favorite oldie, old TV shows, and what's your favorite movies now and of the past?
0: Okay. That, well, that's an interesting question because I really, truly love the news. I love politics. Mm-hmm. And without getting overtly political, which is you know, whatever, <laughs> um, if you're interested in this stuff, boy, this is, this is lotto. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no matter what side you're on, nobody can argue that this is unbelievable if you care about this stuff, and I adore it. I really do. I say to people... I don't care what... My wife tends to read fiction. I said, why would... I I know, by the way, not to push it too hard because, you know, i I like to live in my house. (laughs) I say, why do you waste your time? I don't say waste my time, by the way. I I just caught myself. I I think, why do you waste your time? But I say, why would you read so much fiction? she watches Game of Thrones. When this stuff is better than any fiction in the world. (laughs) And she likes it as well. And then, of course, we border on, you know, she doesn't like what I'm saying, so I sort of cut it short. But Mm -hmm. it is essentially reality stuff. Uh, I love... You know, I love seeing what's happening in the world, even when nothing is really happening. Mm-hmm. But there really is always something happening. As far as older shows, I I think I have a reasonably eclectic taste in film. I, I love comedies. I always loved Avon Costello as a kid and I still love them and oh yeah. uh of course I mentioned Carlin and Klein and those people. Uh I'm a collector, you know. I I'm, I'm about two steps away from being being a hoarder. The difference is everything's <laughs> neat, clean here. And I don't have any dead animals under my magazines because I have four living cats I adore. But I, I tend to collect lots of things, and I think although the, a lot of the things I have run the gamut, um, I just like good stuff. I we go to a fair amount of theater and Broadway. Went to a play last night. Um, uh, as far as music is concerned, I tend to have a relatively broad uh, interest in, in different things as well. Uh, but it always comes back, I think, at this point in my life, to caring more about what's going on in large part because I just can't believe what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yes. So I'm, I'm always there thinking, wow. There's, uh, even in the morning when I get up, I have CBS uh, Radio in New York. That's my radio that wakes me up, although I'm always up beforehand. And a day has not gone by in the past, I don't know how long, whether there hasn't been some story, I can't believe this.
2: Couldn't write this stuff. Huh?
0: <laughs> yeah, I do. And I, and I always think to myself, it's not for lack of liking things that are, you know, let's say mindless things. I can walk through our den and my wife is watching whatever. I don't know the show. I mean, I know the name of it. It could be Game of Thrones. I'll sit down and I'll watch for 10 minutes. What she hates about it the most, I keep asking her, who is this? <laughs> who is, char- char- is this character? Did this, how does this character, is this character a lot? And she keeps turning the, t- you know, putting the sound off or pausing and then she'll say to me, I really, you're, you're welcome to stay here, but you do understand that when you start asking me questions every 30 seconds, it takes a little bit of the enjoyment away. I said, no, I get it. <laughs> so I can almost watch anything. But if I had my my brothers, so to speak, I would prefer watching, uh, you know, uh, political shows, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And as far as movies are concerned, um, I'm pretty much open to a lot of things. I, I don't, I'm not into, uh, let's say, the most, Current kind of whatever is happening thing today in terms of film, but you know, good films are good films. Yeah, good music is good music. Good whatever is good whatever. And uh, uh, I always marvel at how many talented people are out there. Particularly when we doing a show, like last night we saw Maureen McGovern and. Uh, oh wow! I forgot what the play was because I was a little tired for the first act. I took a little bit of a nap. Fortunately, we were upstairs; it didn't matter. Um, but I marvel at how many talented people are out there, and. I think back to our experiences and think, you know, we were lucky for more reasons than I could ever explain, but more importantly, that we had these experiences, it's not singular in the sense of people on earth, but relatively speaking, it is singular. And uh, I can't imagine having had a better time in my life than having gone through this because it's... uh, it's, it's been rewarding on levels that I didn't think existed. And I'm talking about going back to when I was in high school.
1: Mm-hmm. And playing yeah.
0: is playing is playing, playing. If you like it, you like it. And I think if you appreciate any of the arts, and I'm including books and magazines and TV shows and music and all that stuff, I think most people who like some of it sort of like all of it. I don't mean everybody, but they like the entire gamut of what we call entertainment, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and, and whatever. And, uh, you know, for me, I. Like to learn stuff. I just do. I can't get enough information, and uh, I do understand it's a zero sum game. But at the same time, why not? Yeah, you know, nobody's quizzing me on this stuff. It's rather right. that it's just <laughs> a lot of fun too. Yeah, it's, it's 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 the whole thing is enjoyable, and that that's what I every day I wake up and I go, wow, mm-hmm. this is some this is some time. Yeah, and you know, okay, you know, across the board. So I mean, even this thing with podcasts. What was a podcast. I don't even think the word pod... If you told somebody pod 40 years ago, they would have said, we're not going to have vegetables for dinner. Right. (laughs) You know, they would even know what it is. Right, yeah. Here we are in a world where... And I think it's great. The idea that you can have conversations like this that... Short of talk radio didn't exist years ago. They really didn't. Right, yeah. They existed with Gay Talese in his books because he wrote first-person stuff. Mm -hmm. But but not like this. And And I love this stuff. I... I am the best audience for these types of things because I've loved this almost my entire life, conversation. Mm. I do. I just love it.
2: Well, Steve, I, I want to thank you sh- so much for taking the time to talk with us. And uh, just throwing out, I usually don't tell people who's going to be on future shows, but uh, uh, our, our listeners can be expecting that uh, we're going to have Glenn on the show very shortly. And uh, also, uh, Paul is going to be joining us at some point, hopefully. Absolutely. And if everything works out right, uh, we'll have all three of Gun Hill Road on here. And uh, I thank you so much for taking the time to share with us. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough. It was
0: truly more my pleasure than yours, to the extent that uh, having opportunities to talk about this stuff is so—it's—it's—it's it's, it's inspiring to me, in large part because. I love the reality of this, and I obviously don't spend time talking to people, friends, and whatever about it in large part because, you know, it's like saying, and then I wrote. (laughs) So the opportunity is is really uh, terrific, and and I thank you so much for letting me have this opportunity to talk to you.
2: A big thank you going out to Steve Goldrich for joining us here at On Screen and Beyond. And as I said in the interview, we're going to be having more members of the group joining us. So hope you're going to be ready for that. And uh, also, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, things that they've been doing and and music and everything. So get ready. we got a lot coming your way. Well, like I say, we have a lot of things coming your way in the next couple of weeks. So I hope you're going to keep joining us. And um, if you have a suggestion for a guest... Send it to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com, and we'll see what we can do about getting that person on the show. If you're on Facebook, be sure to like us. If you are uh, on iTunes, leave a, leave a little you know, review or a message or something there, and uh, I don't know the whole proceedings of how you do it or anything like that, but just you know, go, go ahead and do it on iTunes. You'll see whether you can leave a review, and what it does is it helps people find us and more and more people all over the world will be listening to on screen and beyond and they can go back in our back catalog and listen to all the great guests we've had over the years and uh there's over we're, we're heading up to 500 episodes here so uh, it's you know we're, we're going to be hitting a milestone here very shortly because a lot of shows do not last 500 episodes people do it for a while then they sort of Poop out and that's it they're done but uh, we're going to hit that and uh, of course uh, I'll let you in on the animated movie that's uh, I've written and uh, it's going to be coming out uh, well now they're saying 2018 things <laughs> take time I don't know I still have some songs to write for it and we got to get things going uh, but the animation is moving along it's still going and I'll keep you informed as we get closer to that well that's it. That's a wrap for this week. So until next week, when we once again take you on screen and beyond, I'm Brian Zemarak. Take care.